This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Biden says he's decided how the U.S. will respond to that deadly drone strike. The lead starts right now. President Biden pointing blame, holding Iran responsible, at least in part, for a deadly drone strike that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan. How to strike back against the enemy so as to deter further attacks while also avoiding a wider military conflict. A Pentagon spokesperson will be here. Plus, undercover raid, Israeli special forces in disguise, dressed as medical staff, civilians, even a, a woman in a hijab, on the hunt for Hamas terrorists in a West Bank hospital. See the video CNN obtained showing the operation in action. And Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush under federal investigation for allegedly misusing campaign funds and hiring her husband for security. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead. President Biden says he has decided how the U.S. will respond to that deadly drone attack on American troops as fears grow on Capitol Hill that retaliating against Iran could lead to a wider war in the region. The White House has still not publicly blamed any one specific group for the attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. soldiers, US soldiers and wounded more than 40 others. But President Biden did say today that Iran does deserve some of the blame. I do hold them responsible in the sense that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East. That's not what I'm looking for. Today, President Biden spoke with the families of the three soldiers killed in action, Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders, and Specialist Brianna Moffat, all of them from Georgia. Specialist Moffat was just 23 years old. Her parents reflected on their daughter's life with Abby Phillip on CNN last night. Brianna was always an amazing person. She just light up a room whenever, whenever she walks in. She was my firstborn. And she was always there for like everybody. The attack on U.S. troops is just one part of the larger conflict happening in the region right now as the war between Israel and Hamas rages on. President Biden has sent CIA Director Bill Burns to Europe as the sides try to hash out some kind of hostage deal and pause in fighting. But while a broad framework was agreed to in recent days, it may have hit another roadblock. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today rejecting one of Hamas's key demands that Israel remove its troops from Gaza. Negotiations are complicated even further, no doubt, by scenes such as this. Israel special forces dressed as civilians and doctors raiding a Palestinian hospital in Jenin in the occupied West Bank early this morning, killing three men that they say were terrorists, one of whom had contact with Hamas, another an operative of Jenin battalion, the third linked to Islamic Jihad. We're covering every angle of this major developing story today, starting with Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh who joins us live now. Sabrina, it's been more than two days since this horrific attack on U.S. forces. You said yesterday that the attack 
has the footprints of Kataib Hezbollah, which is an Iraqi Shiite group designated a terrorist group in 2009 by the U.S. Was it them? Again, thanks, Jake, for having me on today. I really appreciate it. This is something that we're still looking at. It does resemble attacks that we've seen from Kataib Hezbollah previously, but what we do know is whoever did attack and um, unfortunately kill three of our service members. We know that they have a link to Iran through these IRGC-backed proxy groups that Iran continues to equip and train and financially support throughout. And as you've heard the president say and the secretary say, uh, we will respond and we will respond at a time and place of our choosing. President Biden says he has decided how the U.S. will respond to the drone attack. A number of Republicans, including presidential candidate Nikki Haley and Senator Lindsey Graham, have called on the U.S. to strike targets, specifically targets inside Iran. Has President Biden ruled that out? You know, I'm not going to get ahead of the president or forecast what our decisions look like. What I can tell you is we are going to do everything possible to hold those who are responsible for the attack on our forces. And not just that the attack that we saw on January 28th that resulted on, in the death of three of our service members, but the over 100 attacks that we've seen against our forces. We're going to hold those people accountable, but we're going to do so at a time and place of our choosing. And I'm certainly not going to forecast that here today. So after the U.S. and its allies first struck the Houthi yeah. targets in Yemen, President Biden said, quote, I've already delivered the message to Iran they know not to do anything, unquote. But Iran clearly did not get that message, Sabrina. Yeah, and again, that's why you've seen us take subsequent action and subsequent strikes, uh, not only within uh, Houthi-controlled areas in Yemen, but also within Iraq and Syria. We're going to continue to respond. One of the top priorities that the secretary has is taking care of our people, making sure that our forces are protected who are there in Iraq and Syria to ensure that ISIS never comes back and resurges to what we saw 10 years ago. So the secretary, the president are working closely with his national security team to make sure our forces are protected, they have what they need in the region, and of course, to respond uh, when we decide to. It seems one of the problems with this attack was that the enemy drone was apparently following a U.S. drone and that caused confusion and a delayed response. What's the latest on that? Well, that's something Central Command is looking into right now. We're trying to figure out exactly how this drone was able to evade U.S. defenses uh, defenses around that uh, military facility. It's something that we're still looking into. Again, there's no higher priority that Central Command, that the commander there and the secretary have of, of taking care of our forces, making sure that they're protected wherever they're serving, whether it be in Jordan, Iraq, or Syria, or all around the world. We want to make sure that our forces are protected, and something like that attack that we saw on January 28th can never be repeated and can never happen again. But these Iranian-backed proxy forces have been shooting at Americans for months now, yeah. uh, and they have not been deterred with anything the U.S. has done. Do we expect, do you expect that whatever the U.S. does next will be more of a deterrent than what the U.S. has done in the last few months? Well, I'm not going to speculate or, again, forecast what we are going to do. But what I can say and what my boss always says is that we own the clock here. Uh, so we are going to hold these IRGC-backed militias accountable for what they did, for what they have done, for the uh, injuries that they inflicted on over 40 of our service members, for the death of three of our service members who we tragically lost uh, earlier this week. Um, we're going to hold them accountable. Um, how that looks, where that looks, and when that happens, I'm not going to get into those details, as I'm sure you can appreciate why. Uh, but we will be holding those groups accountable for their actions. We believe at least six American hostages are still being held in Gaza. Does the U.S. have any guarantee that they're still alive? 
Well, I know that's something that we are working through, uh, through diplomatic channels, trying to get these hostages released. I don't have an update on their condition, of course, right now. Um, but of course, a top of mind here in this building across this administration is, of course, those hostages that remain in a, a terrorist organization's custody. Uh, we want to see them released. We want to see all the hostages released. Uh, but I you know, would have to refer you to my State Department colleagues who are working that uh, as we speak. What's the plan if Israel and Hamas cannot reach an agreement on this latest hostage deal? Are these American hostages going to be left in captivity indefinitely? Look, I don't want to get ahead of those negotiations. That's something that's ongoing. You've seen multiple uh, people from this administration, from the NSC, uh, from the State Department traveling to the region, uh, Secretary Blinken also uh, speaking out about this. So I'm not going to get ahead of those negotiations and where that stands. Uh, what I can tell you is what the department is doing. Um, of course, we want to make sure that Israel has what it needs to defend itself in a fight against a terrorist organization. But we want to see those hostages released. We want to see humanitarian laws upheld. And we want to make sure that our forces all across the region are protected. Hamas killed Americans on October 7th and has taken Americans hostages. This other group, whatever it is, just killed three American soldiers and wounded dozens more, at least 30 or 40 more. Does the Biden administration have any concern that these terrorist groups in the Middle East think that they can do whatever they want to Americans and there won't be any serious repercussions? Well, we absolutely have concerns and we absolutely are and have said publicly there will be repercussions. There will be accountability held. Uh, that is why you've seen the president and the secretary very forcefully say that we will respond and we will respond when we are ready to respond. Uh, again, I'm not going to detail or forecast what that response looked like, but absolutely these these acts, these um, hor horrific tragedies that happened earlier this week are not going to go unanswered. We are going to hold those that are responsible for that uh, accountable. Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Now back to that gripping Thanks surveillance you. video of Israeli undercover forces infiltrating a Palestinian hospital in the occupied West Bank this morning. Israel says that it killed three terrorists and Hamas is claiming at least one of those men as a member. CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports for us now from Israel where Israeli officials are praising the operation, though some experts say that it may have been a violation of international law. A warning, some of what you're about to see is graphic. Israeli forces disguised as civilians and medical staff storming a hospital in the occupied West Bank, weapons drawn. As they move through the hospital corridor, one man is temporarily detained. Shouts of army, army ring out through the hospital corridor. Several are wearing hijabs. Two of the operatives could even be mistaken for new parents, baby carrier in tow. A dozen Israeli forces infiltrated the Ibn Sina hospital in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin, killing three Palestinian militants affiliated with Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The Israeli military claiming this man, Mohammed Jalamne, planned to carry out a terrorist attack in the immediate future, without providing any details. In a statement, the Israeli military said, for a long time, wanted suspects have been hiding in hospitals and using them as a base for planning terrorist activities and carrying out terror attacks, while they assume that the exploitation of hospitals will serve as protection against counterterrorism activities of Israeli security forces. Legal experts say the Israeli commandos may have violated international law by disguising themselves as civilians and medical personnel. One of the men targeted, Basil al-Ghazawi, was being treated for injuries from a rocket explosion. The hospital said he was sleeping in his bed when he was killed. 
He and his brother Muhammad, also killed by Israeli commandos in the same hospital room, were affiliated with Islamic Jihad. The Israeli military said one of the men carried this gun, but did not say their troops had been fired upon. They killed the three youth, Basil and Muhammad al-Ghazawi and Muhammad Jalamna, in their room while they were sleeping on their beds in the room. They killed them with cold blood, with direct gunshots to the head. Fierce battles later broke out in Jenin, where the Israeli military has been cracking down on Palestinian militant groups, killing at least 381 Palestinians in the West Bank since Hamas's October 7th attacks, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. And Jake, there are also now reports of Israeli forces at a hospital in Gaza. The Palestine, the Palestine Red Crescent Society says that Israeli tanks have now entered the front yard of Al-Amal Hospital in Khan Yunis. They say that uh, the Israeli military is firing live ammunition and smoke grenades at the hospital's front yard. Displaced people and staff are being uh, evacuated at gunpoint, according to a hospital official. Now, the Israeli military hasn't commented on this yet, but in the past they have said that Hamas uses these hospitals for their military purposes, and they've been urging this hospital's evacuation. But there are around 8,000 people believed to be sheltering at that hospital, and sometimes those evacuations, when the Israeli military is surrounding that hospital, can be easier said than done. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond in Tel Aviv for us. Thanks so much. Right now on Capitol Hill, House Republicans are moving closer to something not done in more than 100 years. They're trying to impeach a sitting cabinet official. The high crimes and misdemeanors they're alleging against Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. That story's next. House Republicans are preparing to do something today that has not been done in nearly 150 years and has only been done that one time before. They are moving ahead with articles of impeachment against a sitting cabinet official. The last time this was done was against President Grant's Secretary of War, William Belknap. This was for a kickback scheme. In this case, it's Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Republicans are claim, claiming that he committed high crimes and misdemeanors by his alleged mishandling of the crisis on the southern border. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill. La Lauren, this is a, a big step to impeach. What exactly are the high crimes and misdemeanors that are being alleged? Well, a lot of constitutional experts would argue that there aren't high crimes and misdemeanors here, but House Republicans are arguing that Mayorkas did not enforce border security laws that are on the books, specifically saying that he exceeded his parole authority, that he did not follow mandates on detention, and that he misled Congress when he said that the administration had operational control over the border. Now, Democrats are arguing in this hours-long markup at this point that they can have legitimate disagreements over policy. That's normal, but that's not impeachable, and those aren't high crimes and misdemeanors demeanors in their eyes. So obviously there are not the votes to convict him in the Democrat controlled Senate. You need 66 and that's just not going to happen. But Republicans in the House have a majority. They only need a majority vote. They can only afford to lose two votes though because the, their majority is so narrow. Do they have the votes? Well, that's something that they're still working on. In fact, I pressed Mark Green, who's the chairman of the committee, and here's what he said about the vote count right now. You know, from my perspective, I'm doing what is, I think, my duty, and votes will be what votes are. Uh, I'm, but I feel pretty good. I mean, but it doesn't matter in the end. 
Of course, Jake, it does matter in the end what the votes are, because if House Republicans approve these articles of impeachment in committee and then there aren't, they aren't able to bring them to the floor because they don't have the votes, obviously that would be a major political uh, shot for Democrats to take at them in the election. And certainly that's something that Democrats are watching very closely. Now, Mark Green is having conversations with those who are on the fence, and you can expect that there's going to be a fulsome whip operation from Republican leadership if this passes today, which we expect that it will, and as leadership is trying to get to the floor. Okay. All right. Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. There are some issues where Republicans and Democrats do agree. Coming up next, the bipartisan effort in the Senate to crack down on the dangers of social media in an effort to protect your kids from what they are exposed to online. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Our tech lead now, it can be a matter of life or death. Teens in the U.S. are experiencing mental health crises, suffering from anxiety, stress, depression, and we're all witnessing all-time highs in suicides. One major factor researchers, parents, and teens all see is social media. Tomorrow, the heads of major tech companies will again be called in front of senators to explain how they plan to protect children from the algorithms that drive them to harmful topics such as drugs or bullying or content that promotes eating disorders. This is lawmakers' way passing controversial legislation called the Kids Online Safety Act. And two senators leading that charge, Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee and Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, uh, join us now. Senator Blackburn, um, you'll, you're going to have the CEOs of X, formerly known as Twitter, TikTok, Snap, Discord, and Mark's, Mark Zuckerberg, who's meta, owns right. both Facebook and Instagram, among other platforms. What do you want them to say? What are you looking for from them? 
Well, Jake, what we want them to do is lay out what their plan is to protect children online. And one of the things that Senator Blumenthal and I have learned through all the hearings that we've done in the work on Kids Online Safety Act is that even though these platforms know there are harms that are happening to children every day, eating disorders, suicide, meeting drug dealers, pedophiles, they have chosen not to do anything because children are the product when they're on their platforms. Senator Blumenthal, we've seen the uh, CEO of SNAP be the first of this group to endorse the Kids Online Safety Act. Uh, and not to mention anyone watching football this week unlikely saw an Instagram ad promoting parental controls. Do you think these social media companies are, are finally getting serious about the need to address the problem when it comes to social media and children? They're getting serious, Jake, only because support for the Kids Online Safety Act is mounting. We now have almost half the Senate co-sponsoring it, evenly divided, Republicans and Democrats. And in answer to your first question, what I want to hear from these CEOs is that they will support the Kids Online Safety Act, also known as COSA. And I'm going to put them on the spot, each of them. SNAP has endorsed it. I want to see the same from the others. Senator Blackburn, this is obviously not an easy space to regulate. Uh, as artificial intelligence, AI, enters this realm, um, are your prescriptions looking ahead enough? Or do you fear the law is going to continue to, to trail behind technology as it advances so rapidly? Jake, one of the things we know is that technology is going to change before a law is written and signed into law. So therefore, what we are doing is putting in place the toolbox that kids and parents need to keep kids safe online so that they can adjust those algorithms, opening, opening up the algorithms, having these platforms submit to an audit each year, having a dedicated channel that parents can report the bullying and then uh, and eating disorder information, pedophiles, uh, bad actors that are in this space and requiring these platforms to do something about it. Senator Blumenthal, kids uh, are, are shockingly good with technology. Um, my kids are much better with technology than I am. Um, do you fear that they're just going to be easily find workarounds around any restrictions put in place? There really is no possibility of kids outsmarting the restrictions in this law because, first of all, they'll have tools if they want to disconnect from the algorithms. It's not about censorship. It's about giving parents and kids choices and also holding them responsible, those big tech companies accountable so that they are forced to mitigate and prevent harms. We're taking the burden away from the parents because mm -hmm. kids are a lot smarter than parents, we know it, and putting that responsibility on the big tech companies themselves. Transparency and accountability. And we're going to hear a lot of verbiage tomorrow, no question. A lot of empty promises. We're in favor of regulation, just not that regulation, mm -hmm. but we need this law because it will keep pace with technology. And Senator Blackburn, how do you write a law that prevents bad actors from having sexual conversations that are inappropriate with kids while also allowing, for example, let's say there's a 13-year-old gay kid 
and he's just looking for verification that he has a right to live his life and and he's in a world right there where he doesn't feel like he can go to his parents he can't go to his teachers how do you draw that line so that kid can find places that are safe that are welcoming that that uh, are healthy and constructive while also having a line there so that predators can't take advantage. That's exactly right. And that is why having safety by design and these children being able to have visibility into those algorithms is so vitally important. And it's one of the reasons that Senator Blumenthal and I have spent so many years working on this and engaging so many different groups and listening to them, sitting down and hearing from them so that we put in place these guardrails so that the internet is going to be a safer place. These platforms are going to be a safer place for all children. Senators Marsha Blackburn and Richard Blumenthal, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. Elon Musk, the second richest man in the world, according to Forbes, is behind Tesla, X, formerly known as Twitter, SpaceX, and much, much more. And now one of his brands is behind a major medical achievement, the good and the controversial, ahead. In our health lead, billionaire Elon Musk's startup company Neuralink just implanted its first brain chip into a human patient. Neuralink says this implant would give people the ability to control external devices, such as a keyboard or a phone, by using only their thoughts, which means, depending on how this trial goes, we could see an important milestone in improving the lives of those who have lost the ability to use their limbs, for example. But there is also, of course, concern over the ethics and safety of this trial and the reliability of Musk's company, Neuralink itself. Let's bring in Amy Webb. She's the CEO of Future Today Institute and CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Amy, to you first, Musk's startup is not the first company to do something like this. And to be frank, Musk himself has a mixed success record, both in terms of effectively leading companies and promising to dish out life-changing new technology. Is Neuralink worth the hype, do you think? Well, the curious thing that I found was that typically when you have groundbreaking, brand new scientific breakthroughs, they're published in academic peer-reviewed journals. Uh, This study was published on Twitter, and what we got was a really compelling PR video and basically no detail to follow. I only bring this up because this is a man who, yes, has definitely changed different industries, but has a, a knack for launching concepts before there's anything concrete behind them. You know, an automated car is one thing. When we're talking about challenging issues that are medical, you know, with medical devices and people um, who, who need them, not to mention things like AI and ethics and privacy, I, I think we ought to be a little skeptical. Well, let's talk about the, the skeptics who have ethical concerns, uh, who worry about the societal consequences of enhancing cognitive ability somebody who is who is healthy and doesn't need it as opposed to somebody who, who's paralyzed for example what's your view of it well look in 2013 this is 11 years ago some researchers at the university of washington connected their brains their their heads together um, in a in a non-invasive way over the internet uh, to control the hand motions of each other so i think one person thought the letter f and another person typed it 
there are definite benefits to having technology like this. But listen, on the last segment, we were talking about kids online and whether or not we should allow them complete unfettered access to networks and to content that is well above their age limits. I think this is a case where we definitely want to improve the longevity and the lifespans and the health of everyday people, especially those who have mobility needs. But I think that we need to talk about the next order consequences. We need strategic foresight here to think through what this all might look like in the future, especially given that we're talking about a founder who does not have a good track record when it comes to privacy and telling the truth and being transparent. Sanjay, you're a practicing neurosurgeon. For people who don't know, you're not just a great on TV and an amazing journalist. You actually perform brain surgery every week. How significant is this from a medical perspective and how does the technology work? Yeah, look, I think um, taking into account everything Amy just said, I, I think this is significant, but but very early. I think people automatically anticipate that this is gonna be some sort of device that can quickly share cognition. It's nowhere close to that. Let me show you, first of all, what the device looks like. And as Amy said, all we have is basically tweets at this point about this, but this is what the device looks like. And this is a device then that would sit in a certain area of the brain. So that's the interface that we're talking about, the brain-computer interface. It's then connected to something that sits in the chest, which is essentially via Bluetooth, uh, giving off signals to, to devices, a smartphone, a, a mouse, things like that. So the idea is then to connect that, that particular part of the brain via the device we just showed you to the environment, specifically some of these devices around them. It's not the first time, uh, maybe the first time for Neuralink, but these brain-computer interfaces have been implanted before. I had a chance to talk to the CEO of Synchron, which is another company. They've been implanting these devices, specifically to ask him about what these devices are. Take a listen. What, what is a brain-computer interface? If you can get a device that can detect and uh, interact with brain activity, which is all electrical signals, then you can potentially restore that component of the brain. So what that basically means, let me just show you to your question, Jake. If you have a device that's sitting in a very specific part of the brain, this is a part of the brain that controls motor function. The device sits there, and then basically over time, the device learns what is the electrical pattern in the brain when someone thinks to move a mouse forward or move it to the right. It starts to learn that. After a while, the device knows enough that when a person simply thinks about this, and this is a person who has quadriplegia, for example, when they simply think this, they can actually create movement on a computer screen. That's basically where we are right now. The brain does cognition. It does sensation. It hears. It sees. This is motor. This is motor function that could potentially be uh, restored to some extent for someone who doesn't have it because of ALS or, or quadriplegia. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, stay with us. Amy Webb, thank you so much. Sanjay's also getting a first glimpse at what could be another major medical transformation. He went inside a research facility aiming to transplant organs from pigs into people, given the organ shortage there is. See it for yourself and hear why this facility is so important. And we're back with our health lead and a CNN exclusive report on how pigs could save your life one day. Let me explain. Right now in the United States, 17 people die each day waiting for new organs. The reality is there are just not enough donors. CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, 
got some incredible rare access to a research farm that is raising pigs for the purpose of organ transplants in humans. These pigs could one day provide a nearly endless supply of organs to save humans. Kidneys, hearts, livers. It's called xenotransplantation. And what you are watching at this research facility has never been seen by the public before. We usually try to limit this to only the staff that takes care of the animals. We very rarely let other folks come in. Right? Mike Curtis is my guide today. He is CEO of Egenesis. That's a company devoted to raising pigs to try and solve the organ shortage crisis. Everything's controlled, like all of the feed is clean, water's clean. As you can see, the staff is clean. We try to maintain a very clean environment here. And I should just point out that I walked into a room, turned on a filter, essentially cleaned the air for five minutes before I could then go shower. That's why my hair is wet. I've, I've washed myself. I put on everything new here, including underwear, socks, shoes. Everything is different just to be in this room. Gives you an idea of just how clean it is in here and how important that is. It's more than I typically do to prep for the operating room. All of it to protect the pigs from us. I got to tell you, I did not know what to expect. It's powerful just to be here with these pigs. These two and those three and the little guy here, they're fully edited. All these piglets can carry a total of 69 edits to their genome. That makes them among the most genetically modified mammals on the planet. How much change has to happen to that, that pig genome in order for it to actually become more compatible with the human? Our approach is really three-pronged, where we're trying to reduce the risk of, of disease transmission from the porcine donor to human. We're editing in a way that reduces or eliminates rejection. And then we add genes to control rejection. They do all of this with the help of CRISPR, the gene editing tool that allows scientists to manipulate the cell's DNA, knocking out or adding in genes. In this case, to make a pig's organs more compatible with the human recipient. To keep the consistency of the genetics, we establish the cell line and use cloning to produce consistent donors. It's akin to what was done with Dolly back in the 90s, cloning. It is essentially a modern-day assembly line of standardized, genetically modified pigs. We've selected the Yucatan mini pig because fully grown, they're about 70 kilos, 150 pounds. Right, so the organs are correctly sized for a human recipient. You know, it's kind of amazing. As much as we talk about the really intricate science of gene editing, ultimately you got to get the size right. That's right. Less than 1% of the people who die every year die in a way that they could ever even be considered um, as organ donors. And so even if you optimize everything, there still wouldn't be enough organs. In the vascular wall. Dr. Robert Montgomery is the director of the Transplant Institute at NYU Langone Health. He's also the recipient of a heart transplant. I had a heart transplant five years ago. I had seven cardiac arrests, and I still wasn't sick enough to be able to draw an organ. That experience became a rallying cry for him. We need a sustainable, renewable source of organs from something else other than humans dying. Are animals the answer to that? I think animals are the answer to that. Specifically, pigs. Besides the size similarities, pigs also have several piglets with each pregnancy, making them a quickly scalable source of organs. One day, 
you might even see facilities like this all over the country. We've been doing research on xenotransplantation for decades. Pig organs into monkeys and doing gene edits and that work has progressed. But there was still this question of, are those results translatable to a human? Had we learned everything there was to learn about transplanting these organs into non-human primates? I think there were diminishing returns. The problem was the FDA still wasn't ready to give the green light to transplanting a pig organ into a human being. So Montgomery proposed a provocative idea. What if the first human recipient was brain dead? Their heart's still beating. They can be maintained on the ventilator and you can really see what the human response is going to be. On September 25th, 2021, Montgomery performed the first ever genetically modified pig kidney transplant into a brain-dead human. And it worked for 54 hours. But each time they tried, the results got better and better. We've done this five times. The first four, two kidneys and two hearts were just for three days but this last kidney was for two months. It's a much healthier looking. He and his team shared the findings from their last patient with me. See that red? Yes. That's hemorrhage. We did have a mild rejection, and we were able to test to make sure that we can treat that, you know, using sort of conventional um, anti-rejection drugs. Then, in January of 2022, for the first time in history, a team at the University of Maryland Medical Center transplanted a genetically modified pig heart into a living human being, someone who was not brain dead. It was allowed by the FDA's compassionate use pathway for experimental treatments, something used when a patient has no other options left. Right, a patient imminently facing death, why wouldn't you try? But how far are we still to this becoming a reality? I think for the right patient, we're going to see it in the next couple of years. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Pigs that could save human lives. So these are large whites. These are the sows that we use to do the embryo transfers in. You know, I, I never expected to feel like I was immersed in a really scientific sort of place hmm. in the middle of a, of, a, of a pig barn. There's the equivalent of five or six Nobel Prize discoveries. Cloning is one of them. The discovery of CRISPR is another one. Aloe transplantation, all Nobel Prize winning discoveries. We're integrating all of those to make this a reality. Got to say, Jake, it's uh, really remarkable science, and it could completely change the way we think about transplantation. It doesn't come without some ethical challenges. What are the roles of animals in terms of protecting and preserving human life? And how much tinkering should be happening to an animal genome in order to make this happen? Those are questions they're going to have to answer, but as you heard, Jake, within the next couple of years, this could become a reality for a lot of patients. Yeah, when you talk about the, the tinkering of the genomes, are there concerns about over-editing the, the genomes of these yeah. pigs? How, how do they know when enough is enough? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I mean, what they've been doing is sort of doing progressively more edits to try and figure out at what point does this essentially become uh, similar to what a human-to-human -human transplant would be. So eGenesis, the company that just uh, created that research facility, they settled on 69 gene edits. A little bit of an arbitrary number, but that's they, what they think is the sweet spot. Some people have done as few as three gene edits. Some have done a lot more. So they're gonna figure that out, but I think somewhere in there it's gonna be probably in that several dozen number.
All right, fascinating stuff. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Today, the top House Democrat, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, gave CNN a no comment when asked about Congresswoman Cori Bush, a Democrat from Missouri, and the federal investigation she now faces, what Congresswoman Bush herself is saying about the investigation. That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to the Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, more U.S. funding on hold for UNRWA, or the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, after several of its members were fired this week, accused of helping Hamas with its October 7th terrorist attacks on Israel. A hearing examining the group just wrapped up on Capitol Hill. I'm going to talk with a leading United Nations critic who testified. Plus, the seat that George Santos once held after months of lies and federal charges Santos is long gone from Congress. Meet a Democratic candidate trying to right the wrongs done in that New York district. And leading this hour, Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush denying claims of any wrongdoing as the Justice Department investigates her for allegedly misusing campaign funds to hire her husband as part of a security team. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. Manu, what do we know about the Justice Department investigation into Congresswoman Bush? But we're told by multiple sources that she's actually the target of a corruption investigation. We also know that there's a federal grand jury. A subpoena was issued. The House actually greenlit the subpoena to go forward. That's how this first came to light. Now, she denied in a statement today that she has made any misused taxpayer dollars. But she did acknowledge there's an investigation into her campaign fund, how she's used some of those campaign funds. And as you mentioned, the questions about her security services and retaining her husband, who she says has security expertise to deal with security that she needed to be dealt with. She said she had done nothing wrong. The Ethics, Investig- Ethics Committee in the House has already investigated this, but still, clearly facing this federal probe, the question is, where does it go next? She spoke to reporters after she put out a statement, reading for word for word and saying she did nothing wrong. As a rank-and-file member of Congress, I am not entitled to personal protection by the House and instead have used campaign funds as permissible to retain security services. I have not used any federal tax dollars for personal security services. In accordance with all applicable uh, rules, I retained my husband as part of my security team to provide security services because he has had extensive experience in this area. Now, Jake, she said that she was acknowledging this investigation in the interest of transparency, though she did not answer questions from me and other reporters about exactly what is happening in this investigation, the scope of it, whether she's actually spoken to federal prosecutors, whether she's actually being interviewed by the grand jury in any way. She did say she would cooperate fully with this investigation, and she claimed that she would be exonerated, Jake. So, Manu, uh, like... Every member of the House and a third of the Senate, uh, Congresswoman Bush, is up for re-election this year. How might this investigation impact her campaign? 
Well, it's really unclear because, of course, this is a very Democratic district in the St. Louis area. In fact, Joe Biden carried that district by some 58 points in 2020. So Democrats will hold this no matter what. The question, of course, is about her primary and whether this will have any impact whatsoever on that. Her last quarterly reports, which is the third quarter of last year, she didn't have much campaign money. In fact, she had less than $20,000 in cash on hand, which would make her vulnerable to any serious challenger. We have not seen her end of the year, the last quarter of last year. Those numbers are expected to come out later this week. So at that point, we could get a sense about whether she is truly vulnerable and whether her primary opponents will try to use this to their advantage. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Let's discuss with our panel. Uh, Doug, so now we have a DOJ investigation into Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush, a DOJ investigation uh, into Hunter Biden, the president's son. Uh, Republicans, however, continue to say that the Justice Department has been weaponized against Republicans. They found a message that they really like and they want to stick to it. The problem is these things become problematic for that messaging. It, it suggests that maybe it's not true, maybe it's not all on the up and up. It may work to your base, but what works for your base is not always great politics outside of your base. Great example. This week, we've seen a lot of conservatives say that uh, that the tight end for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs, <laughs> Travis Kelsey, is somehow the Manchurian tight end. Not smart messaging coming from Scott Walker and other conservatives. But we get defined by this, and that's the problem. But let's talk about this issue with Congresswoman Hi. Bush, because back in 2021, she was asked to respond to critics who said it was hypocritical that she spent thousands in campaign funds on private security while she continued to push for, quote unquote, defunding uh, the police. She said the alternative to her paying for personal security could be that she gets killed. Um, take a listen to how she defended it. And so I end up spending 200000 If I spend 10, 10, 10 more dollars on it, you know what? I get to be here to do the work. So suck it up and defunding the police has to happen. What do, you, what do you make of today's news in light of her activism uh, in favor of defunding the police? Yeah, it's beyond irony and all the way to hypocrisy. Uh, uh, Congresswoman Bush was one of the few Democrats who pushed this, this defund the police slogan. By the way, the vast majority of Democrats opposed it. They opposed it in referenda in, in Minneapolis, even where George Floyd was murdered by a cop. Uh, but still, it's, it's terribly problematic, and I, I don't even understand that answer. I want security for my members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats. I think that we should have more taxpayer money. I want my taxpayer money to protect Congresswoman Bush and every other member of the House and Senate because there are threats. But my goodness, the hypocrisy of that is, is really uh, pretty outrageous. Now, she has a right to defend herself. But by the way, this long list of Democrats being investigated by the Democratic Justice Department includes Bob Menendez, the senior most right. Democratic senator from New Jersey, senior most Democrat in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's been indicted, I think, twice yeah. by the Biden Justice Department. So it is, it is nonsense, nonsense and claptrap to say that they've weaponized the Justice Department against their political foes. By the way, Congresswoman Bush votes with the president over 90 percent of the time. They disagree on defund the police, but on everything else, she's been voting with Biden down the line. Not someone you would indict if you were uh, having a politicized Justice Department. Well, she, they should not been indicted. I don't want to be unfair. Right. She's simply she's being, being investigated. Right. Investigations are not indictments. Indictments right. are not convictions. Right. We should always keep that in mind. Um, meanwhile, uh, awkward day for House Democrats uh, because uh, another progressive U.S. House member is under fire. Congressman Jamal Bowman uh, of New York. Web archives from 2014. Uh, reveal that he wrote blog posts, including original poetry, uh, that seemed to embrace uh, some 9-11 conspiracy theories. One stanza reading, later in the day, Building 7 also collapsed. Hmm. Multiple explosions. Heard before, 
and during the collapse. Hmm. Do you like that? That's my, my poetic <laughs> like reading. Story, yeah. uh, the Robert Frost of our time. Uh, now, that's lunacy. Uh, the, the conspiracy theories about 9-11. Um, he's apologizing, saying he doesn't believe this anymore, slamming MAGA extremists for continuing to embrace conspiracy theories. But, but uh, I mean... Uh, what do you think? Two, two roads diverge in a wood, and he took the crazy one. And <laughs> you know, this is what we see consistently with Bowman. And you know, we saw this obviously most close up when he pulled the fire alarm but said, I didn't pull the fire alarm. And then we all saw the video of it. He has a very real credibility problem. And it's why, uh, similar to Cori Bush, these are problems not in general elections, but they sure are in their primary elections. And what do you, what do you well, think? It, it, it's especially problematic in New York. Now, I will say in his defense, it was a very long time, a decade ago, he was not a congressman. Uh, he was an adult. He was a principal. He was, he was, he was, he was a 35-year-old adult. I know. I'm not, I don't, I'm, look, I'm not trying to defend that. We, I lost friends on 9-11. I think you guys did, too. Um, but I think maybe, here's a hopeful side, maybe it's a glide path out of crazy toward normal. Right? 9-11 conspiracies 10 years ago. Fire alarm a couple of months ago. Maybe next is just like bunny ears behind Speaker Johnson. I've been Johnson. that for my party for about six years now. <laughs> you know, but it is pretty outrageous. Marjorie Taylor Greene a few years ago was talking about how the plane didn't hit the Pentagon. I mean, it's just, just, I don't even understand what's going on. We talk about the horseshoe effect in politics. The horseshoe Sometimes theory, yeah. uh, people who are on the far right and the far left meet up on policy. They also meet up on crazy conspiratorial theories quite often. Does it feel like we have more yeah. of these folks in Congress today? And is that a result of gerrymandering, making Democratic seats more Democratic, Republican seats more Republican? And I, th I think yes, but it's, it, even more than that, it's social media. Social media puts us in silos. It weaponizes our amygdala against us so that all we see is what confirms our bias and our, and, and, and our hate, frankly. So I, I think social media is a big cause of this. Paul Begala, Doug Hyde, thanks so much. Also in our politics lead on February 13th, the people of New York's 3rd Congressional District will get a chance to decide who fills the vacant seat of disgraced former Congressman George Santos, a Republican. Of course, no one can quite fill that seat like Santos, at least we hope. Last week, by the way, he said he misses Congress as he showed up in federal court to face the music for lies he made that are related to alleged fraud. Santos's vacant seat is not only important for the balance of power in the House, where Republicans are hanging on to a razor-thin majority, it's bigger than that. The outcome of this race will offer some important clues about how suburban area voters could opt, could, could go in the 2024 presidential race. Former Congressman Tom Suozzi joins us now. He's a Democrat running for Santos's vacant seat. He represented a previous version of New York's 3rd Congressional District for three terms and vacated the seat to launch an unsuccessful primary challenge against New York Governor Kathy Hochul for governor in 2022. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Good to, good to have you. Let's start with immigration. It's a huge issue on Capitol Hill right now. There is a bipartisan compromise of some sort coming together in the Senate, uh, but House Republicans say that it is dead on arrival. How do you solve this problem? It's got to be a bipartisan deal. Uh, for the first time in 35 years, we've got a chance to make a deal because the president wants to make a deal, not only because he wants to solve this problem, but he also wants to do Ukraine and Israel. Uh, so he's willing to make concessions, and the Democrats are willing to make concessions uh, that they wouldn't normally make. And uh, it's outrageous that the Republicans are saying it's dead on arrival, or that President Trump is saying don't make a deal because you'll give Biden a win. As Mitt Romney said the other day, it's appalling that they would try and play politics with such a serious issue. Uh, I see you have a, a Twin Tower lapel pin uh, on, on, on your collar there. Um, 
If you do win Santos' seat, you will serve alongside your fellow New York Democrat, Jamal Bowman, who today is trying to distance himself from blog posts he wrote uh, about 10 years ago, um, in which he seems to embrace uh, false 9-11 conspiracy theories, uh, talking about the the seventh tower coming down and things along those lines. Um, This terrorist attack obviously means so much to you and is so upsetting to you. You you have a lapel pin. Um, Does it bother you what Congressman Bowman wrote? There's a lot of things that bother me about Jamal Bowman. Uh, He voted against the infrastructure bill, which to me is shocking. Uh, He said some things that are just so unsupportive, so negative towards Israel. Uh, And the fact that he's troped in these uh, conspiracy theories of the of the past is just outrageous. So I'm, I'm unhappy with Jamal Bowman on a lot of fronts. Last June, you said you would welcome an endorsement from uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, the U.S. Justice Department on Friday uh, dropped its, uh, it, it released its investigation to Cuomo's office and found that in his office, women employees were subjected to a sexually hostile work environment. Cuomo's toler- office tolerated it and Cuomo's office uh, retaliated against whistleblowers, all of which, frankly, was known when you said last summer that you would, inde- uh, you would accept his endorsement. Do you, do you stand by that? You want his endorsement? No, I'm not seeking his endorsement, and I can pretty much guarantee that Andrew Cuomo will not endorse me. Why do you say that? He's never really liked me. Since 2021, Democrats have been steadily losing ground in both Nassau and Suffolk counties and Long Island. Um, hence, Republican George Santos, with thin resume and... I mean, there are a lot of problems with George Santos winning there uh, in 2022. Um, Why are Democrats losing ground in Long Island? What is your diagnosis of the problem? The Democrats have not been speaking to the people about the issues they care about. They care about the cost of living right now. They care about immigration and the border. They care about public safety. Uh, They care about climate, quite frankly. They do talk about climate, but uh, too many issues that people talk about at the dinner table every day are not brought up by the Democratic Party. Uh, I have a history of working across party lines to solve problems and try to make people's lives better. I was vice chairman of the Problem Solvers Caucus. 25 Democrats, 25 Republicans, we met every week to try and find common ground. That's how we got big things like the infrastructure deal done. That's how we got the CHIPS Act done. That's how we got the PACT Act done to help our veterans affected by the burn pits. Uh, Democrats have got to do a better job talking to people about the issues that people care about. Uh, And that's what I'm focused on doing. What might you say to a skeptical voter who says... You left your congressional seat to try to get a bigger, more powerful job and you, as governor, and you failed. Why should, why should we vote for you? Well, because they know me. They know me well. And they know that I fight for the people. And they know I ran for governor because the taxes in New York State are too high, because crime was out of control, and because we have a corruption problem in New York State. And I was trying to fight against those issues. Now, the Democratic primary voters didn't think I was the right candidate, and I accept that fact. Uh, but now I'm running for the United States Congress, and people know Tom Suozzi, and they know that he fights for the people. He knows that... He'll stand up against the extreme right, and he'll stand up against the extreme left, and he'll work for the people to try and make people's lives better. Former Congressman uh, Tom Swasey, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Moments ago, right here on the lead, a Pentagon spokeswoman confirmed that the Biden administration has plans to retaliate against those who launched a drone attack, killing three U.S. soldiers and wounding dozens more. What sources are telling CNN about what that retaliation might look like? That's next. Our pop culture lead now, far-right conspiracy theorists certainly don't seem to be following Taylor Swift's advice to just shake it off. In fact, some on the right are all in on pushing deranged claims that Taylor Swift is part of this 
deep state psychological operation or psyop plot by the deep state, the NFL and the Democratic Party to help deliver the 2024 presidential election to Joe Biden. Here's just a small sampling, former Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy posting, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month, and I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially, culturally propped up couple this fall, unquote. And then there's whatever Benny Johnson is writing on Twitter, it's all fake, Taylor Swift exposed as a Fed op to rig 2024 election for Biden, Pentagon admits it, okay, Taylor Swift has previously gone rather public with her political views, of course. She votes against against fair pay for women. She votes against the reauthorization of the of the Violence Against Women Act, which is just basically protecting us from domestic abuse and stalking, stalking. That was Swift in her own documentary, Miss Americana, which came out a few years ago, discussing showing the scenes behind the scenes of why she came out against then Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee when Blackburn was running for the U.S. Senate and why she endorsed Blackburn's opponent, the Democrat, who lost. Perhaps the far right could take some heart from that since this master psyop didn't seem to actually work in Tennessee, but let's talk about it anyway. Democratic strategist, former Biden campaign senior advisor, Alencia Johnson, and CNN contributor Kara Swisher, host of the On With Kara Swisher podcast. Kara... When did the NFL come from a red state staple to an arena for liberal deep state conspiracies? And what does it tell you about the world we're in that people are actually talking about this nonsense as if it's a real thing? Well, it's just nonsense. I mean, to be against women being beaten up. Uh, wow. That's a really controversial topic, I guess. But what you know what it is, is she's very popular and obviously sways voters. And when she said for people to go vote, they went and signed up to vote young people. And she has a lot of sway over people. And so they're nervous about what she might do. Um, I, she's in no coordination with anybody. I think she does what she wants, as you can see. And so they just are nervous about someone like that. So they've got to start smearing her in lots of different ways, not just via these conspiracy theories, but this, these deep fake porn on, on X and things like that. And so they're trying to they're trying to neutralize her, which is absolutely impossible, I think. Alencia, there's this brand new article in Rolling Stone just published. It says, quote, singer songwriter Taylor Swift hasn't even endorsed President Joe Biden for re-election yet. That hasn't stopped members of MAGALAND's upper crust from plotting to declare, as one source close to Donald Trump calls it, a holy war on the pop megastar, especially if she ends up publicly backing the Democrats in the 2024 election, unquote. I mean, would that help him with anyone? I mean, she's an immensely popular performer. Uh, young people especially love her. Women and girls especially love her. I don't really even understand this. Yeah, I mean, look, they will never talk about policies or positions. And it's interesting that they are going after Taylor Swift, who in the clip that you showed when she was talking about why she was going against Marsha Blackburn was very personal for her. Right. The violence against women reauthorization, that vote against it was her decision around going for Marsha Blackburn's opponent. And it's interesting because I want to ask these MAGA folks, these conspiracy theorists, are they OK? Because literally, if they're going after Taylor 
Taylor Swift versus looking at the policy positions of the Republican Party. Instead, they could actually kind of see why young people, women, LGBTQIA folks, people who support Taylor Swift would actually support her and, and understand why she's making this decision. One thing I do want to point out is that when she tweeted on or posted on Instagram, I'm getting my social media channels mixed up, but she posted on National Voter Registration Day, vote.org. That organization received 35,000 plus registrations in one day. She understands her power. That's why she endorsed President Biden in 2020. And it's just interesting to see these men go crazy over a woman who, quite frankly, is actually helping the NFL because since her and this you know, whether you want to believe it's made up or not relationship, she's brought over $300 million to the Kansas City Chief and the NFL. So it's interesting to see what they're squirreling about going into the election uh, and they're making their target Taylor Swift. So I, my wife and my daughter are, are big Swifties, uh, especially, mm-hmm. especially my 16-year-old daughter. I mean, they're just, she's just devoted to her. And this, uh, this is an encounter with something that I've had to deal with as a reporter for the last eight or nine years, uh, now encroaching into this world uh, where teenagers are uh, and young people who are like, what on earth are you talking about? I mean, I, I can't believe that this is, that anybody thinks this is strategically wise, Kara. Yeah, I mean, it makes you look old. It makes you look like that old man shaking his fist at the internet kind of meme kind of thing. And so, you know, I don't know, what are they going to do against ice cream next? Because Joe Biden eats a lot of it. I, it's it's bizarre and a really wrongheaded because she really does have a platform well beyond even theirs. I mean, look at look at how much money she contributed. They should embrace her. She's a capitalist. She made billions of dollars for the economy. She, you know, the Fed even said she could have kept us out of recession along with Beyonce and, and Barbie. Um, it's just, I, 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 it's inexplicable why they're doing this. I see why they're trying to impugn her, but it's just not going to work. And now she's going to the Super Bowl. So, and the other choice is San Francisco. So, Maggoteers everywhere, I guess. Well, you know, I'm an I'm for an, anybody. I'm an Eagles fan. Congrats on your 49ers, Kara. I'm an Eagles yeah. fan, but even yeah. I have to like be swept up in this beauty, beautiful relationship mm-hmm. with. I mean, it's the wrong Kelsey <laughs> brother, but like, I'm yeah. happy for him. I'm happy for all him. I'm happy. Yeah, I mean, it's all nice. I don't understand yeah. why do people have to yuck yeah. the yums? Kara Swisher and Alencia Johnson, thanks so much. A single night vision photo capturing the last American soldier to leave Afghanistan after decades of war. The U.S. promised not to leave its allies behind. That has not panned out. My next guest trying to make good on the promise. They'll join us next. Stay with us. Now for our buried lead, that's what we call stories that we don't think are getting enough attention. In less than 24 hours, we could be hearing some damning testimony on the chaotic aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. It has been two years and five months since U.S. service members left and Taliban fighters poured into Kabul, taking control of the country and taking revenge on many of the same people who helped the U.S. for two decades. In April of last year, Diana Shaw, the acting inspector general of the State Department, testified before Congress about some of the consequences from that chaotic withdrawal. These include the near doubling of the number of Afghans in need of humanitarian assistance since the Taliban came to power, and the severe curtailment of the rights of women and girls. Further, the Afghan Special Immigrant Visa Program still has more than 152,000 SIV applicants in Afghanistan. As of September of last year, approximately 10,800 applicants had received Chief of Mission approval 
the key step toward getting a U.S. visa, and about 67,000 additional applicants were being reviewed for a U.S. visa. Tens of thousands more have begun the application process, and tomorrow a House panel is going to look at retribution that the Taliban is inflicting on Afghan allies the U.S. left behind. Joining us now is Timothy Tito Torres, the executive director of the Moral Compass Federation, and Amy Martin, who will be leading the delegation testifying on Capitol Hill tomorrow. And Amy, let me, let me start with you, because a U.N. report published last August, quote, documented at least 800 instances of extrajudicial killing, arbitrary arrest and detention, torture and ill treatment and enforced disappearance carried out against individuals affiliated with the former government and its security forces. What have you heard is happening to people who used to work side by side with our diplomats and service members right now in Afghanistan? What's happening to them? First of all, our analysis indicates that number is low. Across our 25 plus organizations, along with our partners, we have thousands of documented reports of threats, torture, execution. Um, everyone who works with us knows that our phones are inundated with messages from people with pleas for help. And that includes having to separate from your family and hide in safe houses for months on end. It includes wondering what has happened to your visa packet. Where is it lost in the system? When will it be approved? And it includes, you know, needing to literally deliver life support to people who don't have food, don't have housing, don't have firewood for the winter. And Tito, I know this bears seriously on the veterans community, many of whom trusted these interpreters and others uh, with their lives and now feel helpless. They can't do anything to get them out. Yeah, I'll tell you first and foremost, happy, helping our Afghan allies helps our veterans. The result of fighting for 20 years is you have an entire generation who spent years in combat, individuals with 17, 18, 19 deployments. And right now they're asking themselves, what was it all for? Why did I miss so many birthdays? Why did I lose my brothers and sisters in arms overseas? And, and furthermore, what, what you tend to see is, is the moral injury impact of what happened there. The, Explain what you mean by that, by moral injury. So these individuals believe in something. They believe in a creed. They believe in the Constitution. They believe in an oath of upholding American ideals. This is some of America's best who are fighting on the front edge of, of our battlefields out there. And the loss of trust in institutions, the loss of trust in something that you believe in, is something that the American veteran is feeling right now. And, and Amy, um, Congress also hasn't passed the bill that was supposed to, to deal with this. Um, what are you telling lawmakers? We do understand this is a complex issue. It spans across branches of government. It, expand, it spans you know, beyond political parties. Our request is clear. Ensure viable pathways out of harm's way for our most trusted and vetted Afghan allies. And work with us. We are on the ground every day talking to people, working with allies, helping to keep them out of harm's way. Use our organization's experience, our knowledge of ground conditions, and really form a public-private partnership with the government so that we can solve this together and end the humanitarian crisis. And, and what, are, what are the residual impacts of this? Because, you know, this is not the only time in the I mean, the U.S. might be out of Afghanistan. We're not out of the world. And we're going to have troops. We have troops all over the world. We have troops in Africa. We have troops in Jordan, people just learned, uh, tragically, because of what happened. What kind of message does this send to our allies when our current service members are currently deployed? Yeah, I'll tell you, just because we closed Afghanistan, the GWAT isn't over. We have individuals in the global war on terror. The global war on terror. We have soldiers, airmen, Marines in more than 150 countries right now. And right now they're sitting across from someone saying, can we build this partnership? And that may be questioned from the person sitting across from them. 
And that's why there's a second, third order effect. It affects national security. It affects retention within our military and recruitment that we're seeing those numbers lower than ever right now. And big picture, what, what, what's the, why is it morally important uh, to uphold our promises to our Afghan allies? America has values. We stand for something. And part of our standing in the world is having the rest of the world understand that when we make a promise to our allies and to our partners, we keep that promise. Just like when we make a promise to our veterans, we keep that promise. Amy so- Martin and, and Tito Torres, it's good to see both of you. Good luck tomorrow on Capitol Hill. It's the House Foreign Affairs Committee's Oversight Committee. Uh, the chair of that is Congressman uh, uh, Mast. Thank you so much Thank for you. being Thank here. Thank you. A hearing that just wrapped up on Capitol Hill dug into the largest aid group operating in Gaza. A leading U.N. critic who testified at that hearing will join us next. Now to Gaza, where a 38-year-old Palestinian mother tells CNN she and her family are, quote, dying slowly. Another displaced Palestinian in Rafa says his family is stuck in northern Gaza and drinking polluted water and eating grass to survive a humanitarian crisis. The risk spiraling even further because of explosive allegations against the biggest aid organization in Gaza, UNRWA, which led to its biggest government donors, to suspend funding over what Israel says are UNRWA employees' connections and, in several cases, direct participation in the horrific October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. Director of UN Watch, Hillel Noor, uh, how do you pronounce your last name? Noor. Noor, okay, I got it right. Testified on Capitol Hill this afternoon, and he joins us now. Hillel, you've called for the complete dismantling of UNRWA, not just because of this, but because of years of of such... uh, problems and connections to Hamas and other terrorist groups. And you presented even more information beyond what Israeli officials shared with CNN, including a group chat among UNRWA teachers. Tell us what what your research has found. Well, we exposed today a Telegram chat group of UNRWA teachers in Gaza, which is primarily to share information that teachers need, work schedules, salaries, memos about work stuff, interspersed with lots of messages, photos, videos, celebrating the October 7th massacre while it was happening and other terrorist attacks. So 3,000 UNRWA teachers are on this chat group. We identified about 30 of the individuals uh, with their UNRWA contract numbers, their photos, their names. These are UNRWA teachers who are celebrating the attacks. And, And as I've noted, you've been looking into this for a long, long time. I want to play part of your opening statement from Congress today where you say you've given the United Nations multiple warnings about some of these problems. Let's roll that tape. We sent them reports in 2021, 2019, 2017, 2015, numerous reports. They never contacted us for information. They refused our repeated written requests to meet to discuss the problem. They cannot say they didn't know. Mr. Guterres knew. The head of the UNRWA knew. The the United Nations knew. They simply chose not to act. Do you think that the U.N. Secretary General Guterres should resign? Yes, I think he should. I mean, the October 7th massacre, he said it didn't happen in a vacuum. And then he listed Palestinian grievances. The truth is, it didn't happen in a vacuum because UNRWA is a U.N. agency that for more than 70 years has taught Palestinians that the war of 1948 is not over. The world is with you. The war is not over. Your homes are not here in Gaza when you get cement from the international community to build homes, hospitals, and schools. The message they got was, of course, they're going to use that cement to build miles of terror tunnels into Israel to invade Israel. The message of UNRWA is to perpetuate them as refugees and to tell them that their home is in Israel. So obviously there is a humanitarian crisis going on in Gaza right now. Two million displaced Palestinians um, Jordan's foreign minister says stripping UNRWA funding right now means the agency and the Palestinians who rely on them will be 
collectively punished. If UNRWA ends, what happens to the people who need the aid? Well, look, the supporters of UNRWA are the people who typically care least about Palestinians. The King of Jordan said not one Palestinian will leave Gaza and go into Jordan or Egypt, not one. So the same folks who, it's interesting, the same folks who say there's a genocide happening in Gaza are the same folks who say over my dead body will I let one Palestinian leave that area and to find refuge in neighboring Egypt, for example. So I don't think the King of Jordan really cares about the Palestinians in Gaza. And there is a humanitarian need. Of course there is. It has to be addressed. The UN knows how to address humanitarian needs. They can send in trucks in Sudan, in Syria. They know how to do it. The notion that UNRWA is irreplaceable. It's the only agency. It is infiltrated by Hamas. It is dominated by Hamas. There are alternatives. We need to figure them out. So, okay, forget the King of Jordan. Let me just say, as, as me, as a, somebody who cares about what happens to the innocent Palestinian people, not Hamas, but the innocent Palestinian people, right now, they're in a crisis. You can't end, I mean, do you really think you could end UNRWA right now? Because, I mean, these people, like, literally, like, are dying of disease and malnutrition and hunger and... Yeah. Well, of course, it's not going to end right now. And even the countries who suspended funding, some of it is performative. The funding was sent recently in Congress today. There were some congressmen who were upset that apparently the State Department just sent a ton of money before making that announcement. So UNRWA will be fine in the near term. And of course, no one's saying in the near term, abandon the Palestinians. But in the slightly more than near term, UNRWA is not the solution, it's the problem. The Swiss foreign minister five years ago, Ignacio Cassis, said it's a perverse logic. UNRWA only perpetuates the conflict because they tell Palestinians the war is not over, keep going. The UN Refugee Agency, I work across the street from them in Geneva every single day. Their job is to resettle refugees, to make you no longer a refugee. UNRWA is the opposite. They want Palestinians to be perpetual refugees. That perverse logic has to stop. Of course, Jake, we have to be concerned about the humanitarian situation and not let that slide, but there are alternatives. Now is the time to begin finding them. So Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan, um, who is a supporter of Israel, uh, but also cares about the Palestinian people, he points out that UNRWA also supports an additional 3 million Palestinians in Jordan and Lebanon and Syria, and the suspension of UNRWA funding would meet, quote, the means, quote, the Biden administration is placing more burden on regional partners that are already dealing with the added risk and instability caused by the growing regional violence. Um, what do you make of just that, of that argument, uh, like aside from Gaza, that UNRWA... Uh, is elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, let's take Jordan, for example. It's an, a terrific example that Josh brought. There are about 2 million so-called Palestinian refugees in Jordan. Most of them have Jordanian citizenship. Okay, my great-grandparents fled Russian persecution to Canada in 1904. I am not a Russian refugee. My family's been Canadian for over a century. If someone's been in Jordan for more than 70 years, has Jordanian citizenship, why are they refugees from Tel Aviv? They're not refugees. So let's help them. Give the money to the Jordanian government. We have an established government there. Let them run this, the Ministry of Education. Let the Jordanian government run the schools and clinics. Why is it a UN agency that has a, an agenda and the agenda is to undo Israel? We need to not support uh, a malign agency that has that malign agenda. All right, hello, hello, Newark uh, from UN Watch. Thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Next to sports and some breaking details about a high-profile investigation involving players in the NHL. Stay with us. Just in on our sports lead, CNN has learned that four current NHL players and one former player are going to face sexual assault charges in Canada over an alleged incident in 2018. CNN's Paula Newton uh, joins us now. Paula, walk us through the allegations. 
Yeah, the allegations uh, at this point um, quite shocking for the entire country, not the least of which are, are the people that were involved uh, in this incident in terms of having reported it to Hockey Canada at the time. Jake, we are going back to June of 2018, allegedly. Um, these five, both former NHLers and NHLers, were involved, It's uh, the allegations against them are group sexual assault. The alleged victim has not been identified. She is known in court documents as EM. We now know that one former NHLer and one current NHLer have now turned themselves into police in London, Ontario, where apparently this incident allegedly occurred. I want you to hear now the statement from the lawyer. The first player, NHL player currently playing with the New Jersey Devils is Michael McLeod. Um, he is, uh, his lawyers confirm he has been charged with sexual assault and they say Mr. McLeod denies criminal wrongdoing. He will be pleading not guilty and will vigorously defend the case. And, and they remind us in this statement that none of the evidence here has been tested in court. We learned on the weekend that Alex Fermentin, a former NHLer who played here in Ottawa, Jake, uh, who was playing in a European league, uh, did surrender as well to, London, to police in London, Ontario. His lawyers again confirmed that he is charged with sexual assault. Uh, the statement from his lawyers saying Alex will vigorously defend his innocence and asks that people not rush to judgment. Look, Jake, we have had hearings here in Canada, not on naming anyone or the specific allegations, but crucially that hockey Canada that was in charge of the world junior team, which is the team that these players were on at the time in 2018, that Hockey Canada knew about this. So why didn't police continue to investigate and what happened afterwards? Those are the facts that will now be laid out in court. Jake. All right, Paula Newton, thanks so much. This evening, we have lost another icon of screen and stage. Cheetah Rivera has died at the age of 91. That's a part of Rivera's performance in Kiss of the Spider Woman. Her Broadway career spanned decades, from West Side Story to Bye Bye Birdie to Chicago. Rivera scored a record 10 Tony nominations for her performances. Her most recent screen credit was in Netflix's 2021 movie Tick, Tick, Boom. Rivera's longtime publicist says Cheetah Rivera died earlier today after a brief illness. May her memory be a blessing. If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.